If you have been here the past two days, you'll know I've been reading from Philippians 1, so if you could turn back. And I'm looking at the clock, and I'm going to skim through some things and eliminate some things for the sake of time. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul is introducing this subject of unity in the fellowship of believers there in Philippi. Only, only let your conversation, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now we're going to we're going to read some verses in chapter 2 in a second. This has been a very impressive, most overwhelmingly impressive part of Paul's epistle to me. Um, working in two new areas over the past 20 years and working with a group of believers, we found this to be key, to be essential. And in the past number of years, the past four or so years since coming back, into the area from the hospital setting and moving about amongst assemblies of believers in the U.S. and Canada, I'm overwhelmed. Why should we seek unity in the local fellowship? We're going to see that in verse 1. Paul's going to address it. He's going to give us incentives as to why we should seek it. And in A couple verses after that, he's going to tell us what it actually is. We're not going to be able to touch on it all. And then he's going to say how we can actually experience this this aspect of unity. But here he is. He's writing to the saints in, in Philippi. And in spite of all of his affection for them and their affection for him, and it's very touching. You read through the first two verses of two chapters, and you can't get over the aspect of how much he cares and loves them, and they care and love him and support him. But in spite of it all, Paul is saying there is lurking amongst the lampstand something that is poisonous, something that is deadly, and that deadliness is the poison of disunity, discord, and conflict. And so as we, as we see this powerful, how would you call it, a, a plea for the pattern of unity, we're going we're gonna to hopefully uh, take a look at this here. You know, it's... Um, I've spoken to a lot of brethren who are leaders in God's tillage, if you want to use that term. You know what they tell me? One brother recently said, you know, he says, you know what I can't stand? He says, I hate it when I see apathy amongst believers. It just, he said, just irritates me. Just such an apathy, you know. Someone once said, how do you describe apathy? And he says, who cares? Yeah. He said, and when we see that amongst believers, he says, we don't like it as leaders. And we do everything we can to try and and work with that. He said, but I fear, I fear this unity. I, I fear this, he says. It was Paul that wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. And he said, endeavor unique word we'll look at in a second, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The the local testimony, the local fellowship of believers of which you and I make a part, this is easily the most pressing, the most difficult and constant activity of spiritual oversight and of each believer that makes up a part of that fellowship. 
But I want to just take a second here, and I want to go a little deeper. I want to try and convey for a few minutes that what Paul is getting at is not external forces of unity. He's talking about something that is inward. This is where it affects every one of us. It doesn't matter how old you are here or how young you are. If you are part of a testimony of believers that gathers to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this one subject will make you flourish or fail. What's he talking about? This is inward. This is something that is not externally uh, worked on. You know, it's not like you've got a bunch of people, he says, who are unified because they're in the same container. If I can try and illustrate that. It's not... uh, well, how, how would I say this? You know, when we were kids, I, was, I even asked in the home, I don't know what it's like out here. I've never been to Vancouver. And I don't know what it's like on the West Coast that much. But where I grew up, just north of the city of Boston, Massachusetts, and then in later years in some other places, we had stores that went out of business that were called Woolworths. I heard, yeah, I see heads nodding. So I used to love as a kid going into Woolworths. I was the youngest in my family. And so... When my two brothers and sister were off to school, my mother would take me around. We often went to Woolworths. I loved it. They had these low, flat tables with like a four, five, six-inch side with all different types of toys in there, and I loved the guns, you know, the little pistols. I wasn't allowed to have them. And I'd pop, pop, pop. You know, I'm a little kid. I'm not even in kindergarten yet. But you know what they had there? For like a quarter, we could buy a bag of marbles. And it had this little kind of a mesh around it, a fabric mesh before plastic was really in back in the 60s. And uh, I used to get, love to play with the marbles, right? Well, those, those marbles, if you, if you kind of take this illustration for a moment, they were being held together by an external container. And every now and then, you just catch that bag the wrong way, and you know what happened to the marbles. <sighs> Go everywhere. But you know, when I got to be in grade 7 or so, i never, never forget my, my science teacher. He pulled out from underneath the science desk two big glass bowls. One had marbles. And one had something in it that all of us young guys wanted because we had wrist rockets. And they were steel ball bearings. Be, bigger than BBs. They were good. They were like three-eighths of an inch or so ball bearings. We looked at those things, just loved to get our hands on those things. Hard to find. And you'd get them in your, your little slingshot, and boy, you could pick a squirrel off a tree, you know? Yeah, it was pew. And we wanted those things. And so we pulled them out. All of us boys looked at them. There was about 20 of us in the class. And this is, I don't remember exactly what he was teaching us, but he had a magnet. I want to try and illustrate this. That teacher took that magnet, this big, powerful magnet, and he, he dipped it down into the bowl of marbles, and he pulled it back out, and nothing happened. And then he slid the bowl to the side, and he stuck it down into the bowl of shiny steel ball bearings. And when he pulled it out, all the ball bearings came out with it. You say, what in the world are you getting at? The idea is is this. You've got all the ball bearings being held together because they are being pulled together and held together by the power that's within the magnet. Each of those steel ball bearings are being pulled to each other, right? Because they're being pulled by the power and the force that's inside. And now just try and take that analogy for a minute and look at your local fellowship. God's design, God's desire internally when it comes to this subject of the unity of the fellowship of believers in your locality. Brethren, 
We are not marbles in a bag. We are believers. We are people who are pressed against each other because we are magnetized by the same force. We're we're being drawn by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his love and the, the internal unity of the local fellowship. We are being pulled to each other because we are pulled through each other by the power that pulls, and that's the Lord Jesus. I know that's a homely illustration, but what Paul wanted the Christians in Philippi to grab a hold of is this concept that you believers, he says, you are being drawn to each other in unity because you are drawn to Christ through each other. This is that inward unity that is so essential to the joy and effectiveness and function of a body of believers that is striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is, this is the true unity of the Spirit. And it's, it's, it's a very fragile thing. That's why Paul says in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 3, endeavor. That word really, it's a verb. I can't pronounce it. But the verb that Paul chooses in Ephesians 4, verse 3, means this. It means make Every constant effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul says it takes tremendous effort. That's why he chose that word. So Paul writes to the saints at Philippi, as good as they were. And he says, and don't mind me, I I like to do stupid alliterations. So I have it written in my notes here. Paul says, there is the daily danger of the damage of discord waiting to deeply divide and deceive and debilitate the delivered. Sorry. I ran that by Mr. Mellish. She said, you're gonna, you need to say that twice. Paul is writing these Christians. He loved them. And he said, there is the daily danger of the damage of discord waiting to deeply divide and deceive and debilitate the delivered. And here's this fellowship. Here's this body of believers. And it's a tragedy in a body of believers when disunity works its way in. It's horrible. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. I feel my voice leaving, so I'm going to try and cut this as best I can. Listen to what Paul writes. He is going to give them, in verse 1, the incentives. I'm going to touch on them very briefly. I'm going to read from a little different version. Therefore, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love... If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That's the main verb in these four verses. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Real quick, four incentives. Paul knew that they needed to hear these incentives. And he says to them very quickly, he says, because... I want to tell you why, he says. I want to tell you why there should be one heart, one soul, one mind. I want to tell you why there should be this attitude, this disposition, this, this 
one mind, one soul, one heart that we have in, in verse 27. Let me tell you why. He says, because there's encouragement in Christ. And it's very unique because this word means to come alongside. It's the paraclesis that some of you would know about. This, this idea that the Lord Jesus has come into your life. Every saint in Philippi and believers here. He's come into our lives and he's come right alongside. What a, what a great inspiration. Now move quickly. The second one, he says, because there is consolation of love. And the word there is, is a very interesting one. And if you look it up in the lexicons and, and fairs, and especially in the, in the Mount's translation or the lexicon there, it says this word. It means gentle cheering. That's, I loved it. I saw that and I, I put it into my notes. I said, I really like that. Isn't that nice? Because there is encouragement in Christ, he says. And because there is consolation of love, because there is a a gentle cheering. And if you took the word and broke down its components, it basically means this. To speak to someone by coming close to their side and whispering in their ear. Paul said that's what the Lord Jesus has done for you and for me. That word's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And every single time it's used, it's used in a friendly way. He's asking them to take a look at the love of the Lord Jesus. Can you take all of that encouragement and all that comfort and consolation of love? And can you at not least give back to him that which is the desire of his heart? Unity in the fellowship. Then he says, because, by the way, if you have a version that says if, don't worry about it. It's an if. That means if and it is so. So you could use the word since, or you could use the word because. So without getting into a Greek lesson here, which kind of twists my mind, he says, because there is fellowship of the Spirit. That word means partnership. Because there is communion. Because there is sharing of the Spirit. So he moves from the person of Christ. Keep in mind, he's trying to give him an incentive. He says, I want to tell you why. This is the incentive as to why there should be fellowship. Why there should be partnership and communion and sharing. There needs to be unity in the fellowship because there is the fellowship of the Spirit. So he moves from the person of Christ. He moves to the Spirit of God. And he says, listen. From the moment the Spirit of God worked in your life and brought about conviction and regeneration and, and his indwelling, and then our, uh, to our sealing, to our gifting, to our empowering, to our uh, producing fruit in our lives, and to uh, his interceding for us. And by the way, I found 24 reasons. 24 things that the Spirit of God has done in your life and in mine. And he said, because there is this partnership of the Spirit, he says, will I now, will you now, he says, disrupt that which is most dear to his heart, the unity of the fellowship. I I need to realize that if if my actions of discord that bring about disunity, if I bring that into a fellowship, they are quenching the Spirit of God. This action in my life as a child of God, in its simplest definition, it's a tragic act of ingratitude, and it's a violation of that relationship. It's very touching. It should be an incentive, but it's also something that it should, should touch each one of us. Then he says this, because there is affection, because there's affection and compassion. He said, what does that mean? The word affection here speaks, if you look it up in the original, it has to do with the gut. It's the chief intestines that's why some versions say bowels and it had to do with that's where they felt things you know something happens oh you, you feel it here and so he says because there's affection and compassion do you know can i say this as guardedly and tenderly as i can 
Did you know, dear child of God, that the Spirit of God has affection for you? Hmm. That word means a feeling of deep longing. And what he longs for, we have received. It's beautiful. What does it mean? Compassion. That's another beautiful word. It's only used a few times by the Apostle Paul. And it can be gently and easily translated this way. The tender mercies of God. So Paul is saying, because you have received all this, these, these are the incentives. If I, if, I, if I come into the local fellowship to, to, of which I make a part, and I, I bring in any attitude that divides, anything that's disunity building, I have been terribly disloyal, not only to the Lord Jesus, but to the Spirit of God. It's powerful. It's moving to us. But I want to move quickly for the sake of time, because Paul moves quickly into the next verse, and he says, now what is unity? What actually is it? Can you define it for us? I'm not going to define it. I'm going to let what it says right here. This is a very interesting... I mentioned this yesterday when I was closing, because it's very pointed to me. We went through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, verse by verse, with new believers especially through the first 22 chapters. And we watched this amazing transformation take place in the minds and the hearts of those who were leaving their background, their life. Some of them thought they were believers, and they actually found out they weren't. Amazing, the truths that are found in that beautiful book. But by the time we got to the end of chapter 4, you know what those believers learned? And I mentioned this yesterday. Luke records these words. He says, the multitude of believers were of one heart and one soul, and great grace and power was on them all. What a picture. What what a beautiful picture that Luke records. Here are a group of believers, and their heart, their disposition, their attitude, they were of one heart and one soul. And Paul wants to explain briefly, I'm I'm just going to touch on it. He wants them to know something, that what unity actually is comes out of this that was when the church was born in acts chapter 2 all of a sudden there were these people who were falling down and saying men and brethren what shall we do and when they came to realize the one they had rejected was the one that died for them they trusted him and they became of one heart and one soul and god's great grace and great power was on them all blessing came out of unity That doesn't mean if you're unified and you all are on the same page that all of a sudden people are going to drop out of the sky and fill your seats. That's not the point. The idea is that's what came about because of it. So I want to to move on quickly here. Uh, What Paul is saying, and let me me go back to Ephesians 4 just for a minute. Ephesians chapter 4, we we see, I'm I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to turn to it. I'm going to try and say it quickly. Paul is touching on the same thing. And listen to what he says. This is very interesting. It's very powerful, by the way. He says, therefore, chapter 4, he's changed now. He's gone from the first three chapters where he's talking about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's about to introduce to the believers in Ephesus this concept of what it means now to be in the Lord. And he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You know what he's saying here? Act like a Christian. Yeah. Act like a believer, he says. You say, okay, Paul, how how am I supposed to act? Listen to what he says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent, 
or endeavoring to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. A Christian acts this way. They, they act this way toward their fellow Christian, humbly, gently, patiently, showing tolerance, lovingly, and they do everything they can to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is how a believer acts in a fellowship where unity is brought about and maintained. There must be unity. Why? Why? Well, let me read the next verse. Because there's one body. And one spirit, just as also you were called, in one hope you're calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And such powerful words, Paul writes there, his quill must have been flying across the parchment. Listen, he says, I, I want you to understand something. He says, the inherent supernatural oneness that is found in the Trinity is that which we are called to, unity. I tell you, it's a, the more you look at this subject, the more I just have to stop and put my head down and say, what have I ever done? What have I ever said? What kind of attitude have I ever transferred? What kind of rolling of the eyes have I ever done? What kind of movement of my body has ever been brought about that in the fellowship with which I gather, there has been an attitude of disunity? And can I just stop here again and, and say something? The burden of the example of this falls on leadership. It falls on leadership. I was in a place a number of years ago. I was having meetings with Albert Hull a long time ago. And we, I can't give you the details, but I looked over at him and he looked over at me. And with those big blue eyes, he looked at me and went, like, man, are we in trouble. Because one of the leaders was over here, and one of the leaders was over here, and they wouldn't even shake hands, and they were looking at each other and giving the daggers. And I tell you, it was very difficult. I couldn't wait to get out of there. What does Paul say? Being of the same mind, he says, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What is unity? Very simple, being of the same mind. It means to think the same way. No, it doesn't mean to think the same way on these particular things, he says. But there's an attitude. There's a, there's a, there's a disposition that says we think alike. You listen, I might like foods that you don't like. I might have some Italian dish that I might want to cook and serve you, like uh, calamari. I like squid cooked in sauce. I took it to school once as a boy. And I had it, these tentacles were sticking out of my bun. At the lunch table, the kids looked at me and they cleared out. I happened to like it. That doesn't, that's not what it means. That doesn't mean you have to like the same food or you have to be on that same kind of a page. The idea here is this. Being of the same mind means to be, have, a, have the same attitude and disposition. That's what he's talking about. Now, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm, let me just touch on this really briefly. The Apostle Paul says, now I exhort you, brethren. Here he's done an introduction. The first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9, it's beautiful. By the time he gets to verse 10, he says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. You're kidding. You mean to tell me Paul wants a, a church fellowship to agree? chose those words particular because he called them a church. 
a called out company, a body of believers called out of that system unto the Lord Jesus. And he said, I want you to all agree. What does he say? And that there be no divisions among you, and that you be made complete, mature, in the same mind and in the same judgment. All agree? No divisions, same mind, same judgment. And then he says right after that, you know what's sad, he says? It's sad that there are so many divisions among you. He's talking about attitude. I'm I'm trying to do some real skipping here. This common understanding, this, this common thinking pattern, this same disposition, the concept, the idea, let's say a practical issue. Let's say the, 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 the body of believers in a local area would love to go out on Sunday afternoon with seed sowers and canvas the area with an invitation to whatever, whether it be a, a supper or a whatever. And, and everybody says, wouldn't that be delightful? That's a perfect example of something you see in verse one, chapter 1, verse 27, where they are sunathalo, they're, ath- they're athletes, and they're striving together for an objective in view for the faith of the gospel. Let's move on quickly. We will never, Paul says, we will never think alike. We will never have this disposition, this common attitude, unless we understand the spiritual realities that go along with that. You see, we have conflict when... People don't think this way. The Spirit of God is not saying get your cold, hard facts written down on paper, tape them on the table at the back of the hall, and have everyone sign them. It's not what he's saying. The church at Philippi didn't have any doctrinal problems. They didn't have any moral dilemmas. We know that. The problem was attitude. And that is the thing that is incredibly elusive. You see, as a Christian, I have two possibilities. I wish we had time we would take you to Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 15. And very quickly, we would take the same word. Because when the Apostle Paul says to think alike, the word that he uses there, that phroneto, that idea of the mind, the few times that it is used, it's really more than a few, the key times are in Romans 8 and in 12 and in 15. And in chapter 8, he competes. Again, he not doesn't compete. He shows the flesh and the spirit. And he said the mind of the flesh is death, but the spirit is life. And he brings out, this is the thinking pattern. He says, I'm to think in the spirit. In chapter 12, he says, listen, he says, we're to think with the mind of God as God has allotted, he says, with sound divine judgment. It's not subjectively, it's objectively, as God has given me a thinking process, same word. By the time you get to chapter 15, he brings in the person of Christ. And so you have this unique blend of the Spirit of God, the person of God himself, as God has allotted, I think with objectivity for my fellow believer. And then in chapter 15, he says, I think as governed by the person of Christ. It's beautiful. It's an absolute wonderful picture. Paul weaves this all in here with sound judgment. You see, you know what I have to do to be bringing about unity in my local fellowship? I need to get lifted out of myself. Conflict in the local fellowship is usually a result of attitude. It is the collision of the mind of the Spirit of God and of the Lord Jesus with the mind of the flesh. I'm skipping over some things here. Look at the next one. Be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. What does this mean? You say, this is what unity is. And I'll just, I'll capsulate it very, very briefly. It's very simple. I'm to love everyone in that fellowship the same. 
There might be a brother over here, a sister over here. There might be something going through my mind. I'm to look at each individual believer and maintain the same love. There's, there's a lot that could be said about that. This failure to maintain the same love brings conflict to a head. The collision very often comes because someone has a grudge against somebody else. Bitterness, envy, jealousy, some kind of a possessiveness, some kind of personal ambition. Sometimes there's even hostility that arises. I've actually seen brethren in a local fellowship, one stand up and scream at the top of his lungs. And I was a visitor. And along with over 20 other people, we ran out of the building. Sad. Absolutely devastating to a, a group of believers. So Paul says, united in spirit. This is what unity is. He says, united in spirit. What does that mean? Knit deeply down in the harmony of the soul. It's a beautiful word. It's only found once in the whole Bible. It's this aspect, he says. It's a, it's a word that's one-souled. We have two-souled. We have the word die or dipsukos in, 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 in James. You know, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But here he uses the word sumsukos. It's singular. He says, listen, it's united in such a way that we're one soul." We're to be united in spirit. He's talking about passion and desire and ambition that is linked in the same direction. You see, if we all have the same passion and we all have the same desire and the same ambition to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus, then you'll have a a good start for unity in the fellowship. The problem happens is when we have a desire and a passion and an ambition for my own agenda. And that agenda could be something that could be cloaked in some kind of a Bible verse. Intent, Paul says, on one spirit. This is it's very sad because oftentimes there are a lot of people that have their own purpose. I want to move real quickly to that. I want you to look at how. And with this, we're going to close. Just take a couple of minutes on how. How is unity brought about? And it's very simple. Paul says, I want you to do nothing. Do nothing, he says, from selfishness. That word, we've been, been looking at this for the past couple of days. This means that's a selfish ambition. There's something here that has to do with, I become so selfish that I'm literally battling everybody else. And it could be, it could be right up here. That word is, is used to refer to a party spirit, to factions, to rivalry, to partisanship. If you look up in your, your lexicon, Thayer's lexicon says this, it's a desire to put oneself forward. And it's, by the way, it's actually listed in Galatians chapter 5 as a work of the flesh, or one of the works, plural, of the flesh. It's an ego driven by personal desire. Paul says, do me a favor, he says, pull out your sword or your spear and slay the dragon of ego. Kill him, he says. It'll, It'll destroy your fellowship. Selfishness always produces a lack of unity. And once selfishness takes over the agenda then jealousy rises, and out of jealousy comes strife, and out of strife comes conflict, and unity is gone. Do nothing, he says. Next, next, and this is implied, do nothing from empty conceit. Some versions say, nor according to vainglory. Very interesting word. It is a state of mind that seeks personal glory. I don't think we have to even comment on that. A state of mind that seeks personal glory. It basically is this. Someone vaunts themselves. There is a person who has, who assertively and arrogantly claims to have the right opinion, who in fact is an error. 
I'm, that's a direct quote from a lexicon. This, this, this word is a very unique word. It's, it's kenodoxia. And if you break the word down and, and you study the word, you, you realize this. Selfish ambition is that word. It's the mentality of us, of a, I'm going to promote myself. Paul is saying, in order to maintain unity, do nothing with these two things. Do nothing with selfish ambition and do nothing to promote self. But, this is beautiful, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Can I say something here? Unity, this is beautiful. Unity in the fellowship is born out of humility. It's the humility of mind. And the word actually means having a humble opinion of oneself. Starting to sound familiar. We're getting to verse 5. Starting to get you know, a humble opinion of oneself. You see, humility was never popular in a pagan world. If we had time, we could go into it, going right back to Gideon. When he thought very low of himself, and God says, you're the man, Gideon. You know, humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourself. That's what the meaning is. It could be translated as superior. You say, how do I do that? How can I, how can I think like that? Is it possible? You know, let's just stop for a minute. Do you know what's in somebody else's heart and mind? And the obvious answer is no. You might think you do. You might watch them. You might see what they're listening to. You might see their eyes go. You might see a little body language. You say, I know what they're thinking. I've said that before. I've said to my wife, something happens or something is said. I look at her and say, I know what you're thinking. I might. And I might be right. And if I'm right, it's very frustrating to her. And if I'm wrong, it's even more frustrating. What's, what's Paul getting at here? You see... I don't know what's in your heart, and you don't know what's in mine. I don't know what another person is. All I can see is what I can see and then hear from their words. That's all I'm going to know. So I, I can't really know what's in their heart. I, I'm going to get to a point here, and then I'm going to close. He says this. He says, I, Paul looks at a believer. He doesn't know. You don't know what thing torments me, and I don't know what thing torments you. But there is one heart that I know. And that's mine. Now think about this. I learned this years ago from a man from Australia. His name was Mr. Russell. Came to East Boston years ago. Him and his wife all the way from Australia. And they had some wonderful Bible studies. I was just a teenager. And him and his wife went home and they both died within a day or two of each other. It was an amazing story. And what he taught us was this. He says, you don't know, short little gray-haired fellow. He says, you don't know what's in someone else's heart. You don't know what's in their mind. And so, but you do know what's in yours. And so when I think about myself, and I think about what's going on in here, and I think about what's, what's going on in here, I know what's there. And so, who is the worst sinner that I know? Me. Think about this. I mean, let's talk about first-hand information. Who is the worst sinner that you know? You. Me. That's who I know. And so, if I don't know what's in somebody else's heart and mind and thinking, it's very easy then for me to think superior of them because the first-hand information I have is for me. I don't know how, that's, how that gets to you, but it's like Paul is saying, listen, even I, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. 
He says, I am the least of all the apostles that's not even worthy to be called an apostle. There's much more that could be said here, but my time is up. This subject of being united in one heart, one soul, one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition, from empty conceit, but I need to look on others as superior to myself. And the Apostle Paul then says very concisely, let this attitude be in you. Can I say something as gently as possible, as lovely and as beautiful and as theologically supreme as verses 5 down through 11 and 12 are speaking about the Lord Jesus? They were not intended to be a theological dissertation on the loveliness of our Savior. They were intended to be in contrast to the heart of you and me in living in disunity with one another. The attitude and the mind of believers between each other, the disposition that we have with one another, this absolute need for there to be unity in the fellowship of believers of which you and I make a part is vital. Vital. Can I stop and say one more thing? Do you know that at every conference, I don't go to many conferences, well, maybe I do too many, seven or eight of them a year now in the past couple of years. You know what I've learned? I get a lot of emails afterwards. I give them my card and we talk and we chat. You know what the, what the bottom line is? We have young people here, maybe today. And they're not necessarily young. Some are married. Some have families. And you know what's happening? They're looking at you. And they're deciding, should I stay? Should I continue to go on with what I see? If they see Christ, if they see humility... They'll see unity that is born out of that attitude. It all comes back to the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful today? Wouldn't it be so delightful in the heart of God, your heart and in others, that we bring about and we foster this attitude, this disposition, this spirit of unity amongst us, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that the Lord Jesus would be honored.